to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6 is our text this Lord's Day. And if you don't have uh, a Bible with you, you'll notice there's one there in the pew rack in front of you. Uh, If you are a guest with us today, this may seem like a a very peculiar passage to preach on. If one was just picking chapters of the Bible to preach on, this is probably not the chapter they would pick. But uh, that's not what we do here at Bloomfield Baptist Church. We don't just pick passages to preach on. We walk through the Word of God together. And so we've been in the process over the last uh, year into this year of walking through 1st and 2nd Samuel together. Uh, These books were actually one book in the Hebrew Bible and in our Christian Old Testament uh, they're divided in two books really by the the reigns of kings. In the first book you have Saul being anointed as the first king over Israel and yet we see how Saul disobeys God and God takes his anointing off of Saul. And so as a teenage boy, David is anointed to be the king in a private ceremony, but it takes over 20 years until David actually publicly becomes the king. And that transition happens about the time we begin the book of 2 Samuel, where we find ourselves now. And so now David is reigning as king. He has consolidated Israel altogether. There had been a civil war for a number of years where he was ruling over the southern portion of the kingdom and and Ishbosheth was reigning over the northern part. But now Israel is one and he is reigning as their king. He has established now a holy city, the city of David in Jerusalem. He's moved everything from Hebron to Jerusalem And where we pick up in the story today and in the text today is when David goes to get the Ark of God and to bring the Ark of God back to Jerusalem, or at least that's his plan, and we'll see how that plan is interrupted. And so we're going to walk through 2 Samuel chapter 6 in its entirety and out of reverence for the Word of God, because this is the Holy Word of God, we ask if you're able that you stand as I read today's passage for us. And this is what God's word says. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Valley Judah to bring up the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab which is on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cassinets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put, his, put out his hand on the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. 
And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as a prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. If you would pray with me. Father, as we consider your word today, I pray that you might help us to grasp your holiness and your greatness and your awesomeness. I pray that we would leave this place more in awe of you than we stepped into it. And I pray, God, that in that awe that we might see the glory and the goodness of the gospel and that we would respond to the gospel of our Lord Jesus in repentance and faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we're talking about school starting, for some of us we look back on those times when we finished school. In 1991, I graduated from high school, from Laney High School in Wilmington, North Carolina. And this may come as a shock to you, but I was not the most famous graduate of Laney High School. Uh, in fact, the most famous graduate at the time, and still to this day, was a basketball player who had graduated about 10 years before me. And you might know who he is. His name is Michael Jordan. Uh, Michael Jordan went to Laney High School and uh, there's all kinds of stuff there on display in the high school. It, it, it's very much the most famous graduate we've ever had, probably the most famous graduate we ever will have. And if you uh, were around during that time in the early 90s when Michael Jordan was playing basketball, uh, you'll remember that, that his face, his logo, his picture was everywhere. In fact, it's still a lot of places. Uh, everybody wanted to be like Mike. In fact, there was an ad campaign 
that some of you may recall that Gatorade did in the early 90s, and that was the theme of the ad campaign. It was Be Like Mike. And so the, the commercials would show you know, kids out there playing basketball at the schoolyard, and then they'd go to clips to uh, Michael Jordan winning an NBA championship, and he'd go up to dunk the ball, and then it would show the kid trying to be like Michael Jordan. And in the background, there was this music playing, and over and over and over again, you just heard those words, like Mike. If I could be like Mike, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be like Mike. That, that was the theme of the ad, be like Mike. And for so many during that time period, that's exactly what they wanted to be. If you were on a basketball team, you wanted number 23. If you were going shoe shopping, you wanted Air Jordans because you wanted to be like Mike. I was thinking about that just this week as I was considering where we are in God's Word and how we approach God's Word. Because for many, the way we approach God's Word is we, we look at people that we consider heroes of the Old Testament, people like Abraham and Moses and Noah and David, and we kind of have this theme song we play to be like them. And so we often come to the Word and we read about Abraham and we walk away with the application, well, if I could just be more like Abraham. Or we read about Noah and we think, well, if I could just be more like Noah. Or we read about Moses, if I could just be more like Moses. Or especially David, if I could just be like David. I remember as a young believer on my college campus, and we had a campus ministry there who had an entire week devoted to this theme, conquer your giants, be like David. And they had speakers each night, and they had these talks on campus, and I went to a number of them, and really the application, the theme was, you know, look at how David took on the, the giant in his life, and here's how you can take on the giant in your life. The application was, be like David. Have faith like David. Well, if you've been walking with us through the Scripture for any amount of time, it won't surprise you to hear me say, don't be like David. That the message of Scripture is not be like Noah and be like Abraham, be like Moses, or be like David. No, the message of God's Word is that we should be like Jesus. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, who in Hebrews 11 really commends so many for their faith, men like Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, he, he concludes that section of Scripture by saying, yes, look at their faith, their examples, but what does he say? Be like Jesus. Look to Jesus. Jesus is the author and perfecter of your faith. And so as we come to this passage of Scripture this morning, that's a fitting reminder for us that we're not to come to 2 Samuel chapter 6 and walk away with this goal to be more like David. In fact, what we see in this passage today is a combination of things about David. Yes, we see his faith, but we also see his sin. What we should walk away from this passage with is not a desire to be like him, but a desire to be more and more like Jesus. But in order to see that, well, first we need to grasp what we learn in this passage about God and specifically about his holiness. And then we need to see what we learn in this passage about man, about David and others and their, their unholiness in order that we might rightly see how we can respond and how we can put our trust in Jesus. So that's what we're going to do as we walk through this text together. And beginning with the first point there in your outline, the reminder that number one, 
God is incomparably holy. He's incomparably holy. Not just God is holy, but, but we really have no comparison when we consider the magnitude and the greatness of what it means that God is holy. But we, we get a glimpse of it here in this passage. And we're reminded of it, of the incomparable holiness of God, with the mention here of the ark of God. Now we were introduced to the ark back in Exodus chapter 25. And in Exodus 25, God has given instructions to his people concerning the tabernacle, that the place that he would come and dwell and meet his people. He, he gives specific instructions, dimensions, materials, exactly how the tabernacle was to be constructed. And the very first item that he gives instructions about in Exodus 25 is the ark of God, the ark of the covenant. The ark was God's throne. This was the place where God would meet and speak with Moses. It was a wooden chest, not so different in size than a wooden chest that some of you may have in your home today. Perhaps you have your grandmother's quilt in it. Perhaps it sits there at the foot of your bed. It's probably a bit larger than the ark, the, the, the chest that we see here. The, the ark of God, the ark of the covenant was a wooden chest, but it was overlaid in gold. And, and what it had in it, well, it was very significant. It, it didn't just have family memorabilia or quilts. No, it contained in it the Ten Commandments. It had in it a, a pot with manna, and it had in it Aaron's, Aaron's rod that had budded. And God commanded his people very specifically with instructions about the ark that it was not to be touched by human hands because it represented the holiness of God because it was the place where God's presence would come and meet his people and because it was set apart to be holy, unholy man, sinful man could not touch it. And so God in his instructions instructed them when building the ark to, to build rings to the sides and gave very specific instructions about poles that were to go through those rings so that it could be moved, so that it could be carried from place to place. But he was explicit in his instructions that they were not to touch it. Why? It wasn't just because it was a symbol of God's holiness. No, it was ver the very place where God's holiness would dwell. In fact, he said it this way in Exodus, 20, or Exodus 25, verse 22. God said, There I will meet you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. And so it's important that we see this, that, that the ark wasn't just symbolic, that the ark wasn't just some type of token. No, the ark was the very place where God's presence would dwell. And therefore, it was set aside as holy. And it reminds us that God himself is holy. And yet it's very difficult for us to really comprehend what that means. Because we're not holy. I believe A.W. Tozer does a good job pointing this out in his book, the knowledge of the holy, it's, it's an excellent work about the attributes of God and when he writes about the holiness of God and how incomparable God's holiness is, how it's hard for us to grasp it. He says this, neither the writer nor the reader of these words is qualified to appreciate the holiness of God 
quite literally, a new channel must be cut through the desert of our minds to allow the sweet waters of truth that will heal our great sickness to flow in. We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we're capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. Holy is the way God is. And to be holy, He does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. We are to be in awe of the holiness of God. And one of the great tragedies in the church of Jesus Christ today is we are not in awe of God's holiness. We don't revere God in His Word. We have made ourselves to be God. We are the ones who so often call the shots. We take the Word of God and then we kind of turn it and twist it to our liking to best fit what we want to do. And friends, we see this, not just in our day, we, we see this in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And the way that Uzzah and others respond to the holiness of God and specifically to the ark of God. Now you may recall, uh, the ark has been mentioned before in First and Second Samuel. Uh, all the way back in the early chapters of First Samuel, we see how God's people took the ark into battle against the Philistines and how the Philistines captured the ark. And you may remember that when the news of the Philistines capturing the ark got back to Eli, the high priest, he fell over and died. <laughs> and at a quick glance, that might seem awkward, but what that was was Eli was understanding this incomprehensible holiness that we see in the ark and how now a, a pagan nation had it. That this so overwhelmed him that he fell and died. He understood the magnitude and the significance of it. And if you remember our study back then, you remember what happened to the Philistines, how God essentially cursed them, he brought judgment on them because of the ark, and so they couldn't wait to get it off their hands. And they bring it back to the Israelites, and at that point, in salvation history, we see the Israelites take the ark to a man named Abinadab. And they entrust the ark to Abinadab and to his son, later his sons. And they would be from that point until where we get today in the scripture, the caretakers of the ark of God. They would revere it. They would respect it. They understood what it was. And now we come to this point in 2 Samuel chapter 6, decades later, when David, understanding the importance of the ark, wants to go get the ark from Abinadab and his sons and bring it to this holy city, the city of David. We fast forward now to our text today, 2 Samuel chapter 6. David goes to retrieve the ark. You'll notice in the text here, he gathers 30,000 of his men to march to the ark's location. Now geographically, the ark was about 10 miles away from Jerusalem. So just... Consider this picture for a second. 30,000 soldiers going from Jerusalem 10 miles to retrieve the ark. Well, what, a, what an amazing thing that must have been to witness. I mean, just the other day, 
Uh, one of my girls and I were on the way to Bardstown, and, and just as we passed the church, uh, a motorcycle came by us, and then another, and then another. And if you were around town that day, there were hundreds of motorcycles that came through in this rally. And so from the time that we passed the church until we got to the Y, there was a constant flow of motorcycles. And I was commenting to my daughter about how amazing it was to see that. And we were trying to figure out, you know, was that 100? Was that 150? Was that 200? Well, consider for a moment what it would be to see an army of 30,000 marching from Bloomfield to Bardstown. Consider what awe and amazement you would have as you witness that. And perhaps if you witnessed it, not knowing what's going on, you would think, well, there's a serious battle coming. That there must be a major threat to David and his throne and the people of Israel for him to send 30,000 soldiers 10 miles away. But of course we see in the text there's no threat, there's no battle. But there is the ark. And this should remind us of the significance of the ark to God's people. That it was so significant, that it was so revered, that that David would send this army of 30,000 to go retrieve it. Perhaps he feared the Philistines still. Perhaps he thought they might try to get the ark as they had taken it in battle before. But I think that the big picture here is just the awe and the reverence that they had for the ark. And why again? We're reminded in verse 2. David arose. Not with all the people who were with him. From Bale Judah. To bring up the ark of God. Which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts. Who sits enthroned on the cherub. Again this wasn't just a symbol. <laughs> this wasn't just a religious item. This was where God's holiness dwelt among his people. And so with awe and reverence, they go to get the ark and they go to bring the ark back. And again, God had given very specific instructions about how they were to do this anytime the ark was to be moved. Back in Exodus 25, he told them about these rings of gold and these poles that would go through it. And we read in other places in scripture, I told them no unholy human hand should touch it. But notice, God's people don't heed these instructions. Verses 3 and 4, it tells us that they carried the ark out of the house of Abinadab, but they carried it on a cart. That they made a new cart. This shows that they they revered the ark. They understood its significance. But, But if you notice here, that this wasn't how God told them to transport the ark. He specifically said, in the very... Uh, materials used to build it. You're to put these rings on it. You're to put these poles through it. You're not to touch it with human hands. It is my holiness and you are unholy. He reminds them this over and over and over again. And yet, what do we see here? Well, we see this concept that we see in our own lives. Where people take the word of God and there seems to be a little bit of respect and reverence for the word of God, but we just kind of twist it a bit to our own liking. And so perhaps they were in a hurry. Perhaps for them it was a matter of convenience. It, it was a heavy item and it was easier to carry it on a cart than to carry it with these poles. We don't know the exact reasons, but what we do know is they weren't paying attention to the specific instructions of the Lord. And they were being wise in their own eyes. And the result is disastrous. Which brings us to that next point there in your outline, point two. 
man is absolutely unholy. So we have this contrast between the, the holiness of God that we can't really fully comprehend and the unholiness of man which we can completely identify with. How do we see that picture? Well, we see it in David's men and how they care for the ark. They revere it, they respect it, but they do what's right in their own eyes. They don't follow God's command. And so they put it on the cart, and we see Uzzah and Ohio are, are charged with this cart. And there's a point where the ark, that the oxen pulling the cart stumbles. And the picture we have here is that the ark is probably sliding, perhaps about to fall off the cart. And so Uzzah reaches out with his hands to stop it from falling. And God strikes him dead. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm going to make an assumption here that for most of us, that seems harsh. I would imagine for most of you, if you've never read this before and never heard this story, you're sitting here thinking, what in the world? I mean, God's supposed to be forgiving, and God's supposed to be loving, and God's supposed to be merciful, and what happens here? I mean, Uzzah didn't kill anybody. Uzzah didn't strike out in anger towards somebody. Uzzah didn't get caught lying or cheating or stealing. He saw the holy ark of God about to fall on the ground, and he put out his hands to steady it. And God strikes him dead right there. And there he falls right beside the ark. It's so dramatic. I mean, David himself doesn't really know what to do at this point. David was planning on bringing the ark to his city, to Jerusalem. At this point, plans change. He's like, I, I can't bring that there. If, if he died for something like that, well, David's fearing his own life now. So he's going to send it to someone else's house. Seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? Unfair, perhaps? I'll remind you that when we read the early chapters of Scripture where we read about the fall of man, that the fall does not result from Adam killing his wife or Eve assaulting her husband or, or some great overwhelming cheat lie that they're caught in. God said to Adam and Eve in the garden, you can eat of any tree the fruit of any tree here, but if you eat of the fruit of that tree, on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And Adam and Eve ate of the tree that God commanded them not to eat of. And death entered the picture. And not only would they one day die, but that death would be passed down to every one of their ancestors and to you and I as well. All sickness, all disease, all sin, all wickedness, the worst of the worst of things that you see on the evening news, they all go back to the garden. And what was it Adam and Eve did? Took a piece of fruit and they ate of it. And the consequences were devastating. Does that seem harsh? Does that seem unfair? Consider your own life today. Consider how often we fall short. Consider how often we sin against God. Now, 
oftentimes in conversation as I talk to people about, you know, how they're doing, big picture, share the gospel with them. Do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? I've had people say, well, you know, I feel like I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I've never killed anybody. It's like we've got this standard where we feel like, yeah, if you, if you do something awful, if you're somebody like Hitler, well, yeah, you deserve hell for that. But eating a piece of fruit, touching a wooden box, that just seems unfair, doesn't it? That the consequence would be death. It just seems unfair. Let me tell you about the most unfair thing that ever happened in history. Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, he walked this earth and he never sinned. He did what David failed to do, and Moses failed to do, and Noah failed to do, and Abraham failed to do, and Uzzah failed to do. (laughs) He obeyed God perfectly. He did what Adam and Eve in the garden failed to do. He listened to God, and he perfectly obeyed God. There was no fault found in him, and yet when he stood in a trial before the religious and political leaders of his day, they sentenced him to death. For what? It was unfair. There was nothing fair about it. An innocent man was going to die. And yet, if you know the gospel, you know exactly why this innocent man died. You know, the scripture teaches us that God made him who knew no sin to to bear the due penalty of our sin that we might be saved. The most unfair thing that ever happened was Jesus Christ who deserved no death. He went to the cross and he died in your place and in mine. That's not fair. And the scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we're in that category with David and Noah and Abraham and Uzzah and others. We, we fall short and we sin. And the scripture says the wages of that sin is death. Like Adam and Eve before us, we deserve death. That's what we deserve. That's what's fair. But God in his richness of grace and mercy and love, he, he gives us a very unfair proposition. One that is absolutely amazing for us. Jesus takes the death that we deserve on the cross, and in exchange for that, he offers us righteousness. He cleanses us and he makes us new. The Bible, friends, is not fair. And we should be really thankful today that it's not. Because fair would be you and I spending an eternity under the wrath of God for our sin. But God, in his grace towards us, he does what's not fair fair and he offers us this way of salvation now there's a picture again here in this text that that should point us towards that because we see god's holiness and we see man's sinfulness and we see this great need to bridge the gap between those two and that that's what jesus does for us but we're reminded of further sin and time won't allow us to go through every specific detail here but in summary what we find is that Uzzah dies there beside the ark. David's scared of the ark. They leave it there in the house of Obed-Edom. Edom, Obed-Edom. And then God blesses the house of Obed-Edom. And so then we see, I think, David's in here because he covets and he's jealous. 
he wants that blessing. <laughs> and so he's scared of the ark until he sees somebody blessed by the ark, and now he wants the ark back. And not just that, we see David and the sin of his first wife, McCall. And you can spend more time on this, but essentially, if you remember from our previous studies, this was the, the first wife that David married, which that there tells you about David's sin of polygamy. And you may remember this was the daughter of Saul. In fact, that's how she's referred to in this passage as Saul's daughter, not David's wife, which tells you a bit about their marriage at this point. And you'll remember, really, as a political maneuver that after Saul had taken McCall from David and given her to another man, and now David is on his way to the throne, he wants her back, not because of some romantic love, not because of some return to a marriage covenant. No, he wants her because it's a, it's a political maneuver for him, I believe. It's... He's married to the daughter of Saul. It's to unite the kingdom. And it would seem she wants nothing to do with him. I mean, she looks out there and she sees him dancing before the ark. And, and again, there, there's a lot here we could go deeper into. But essentially, I think what's happening here is, is she resents him. She really despises him. And, and the picture we have of David here dancing before the ark is he's not in his royal vestments as king. He's wearing a, a, an ephod, which is a priestly garment which would have been far less spectacular than those kingly robes. And she's looking at her husband and saying, you, you should be the king and acting like a king. You're not acting like a king. And then she's just criticizing him. And, and there's, there's this despising in her heart towards him. And notice he returns in the same fashion. He just looks at her and essentially says, well, you don't like me now. Well, you're really not going to like me in the future, you know. And again, we see his sin. He's going to tend to his other wives, and he's not going to tend to her at all. In fact, the, the closing verse of the chapter is, And McCall, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Now, we might read that to say that God made her barren, but it doesn't say God made her barren. And we don't know the full details, but I think the indication here is David basically said, I'm not going to have anything else to do with you. And there, again, we see the, the fulfillment of something God had said long ago, that, that essentially Saul's line would be wiped out. And so there's going to be no children by his daughter. That line's not going to continue. There's not going to be a threat later to David's throne from the line of Saul. There'll be a threat from his own line. <laughs> but it's just a mess. I mean, if you go to a marriage counselor this week and they break out this passage, then just walk out. I mean, this is not the picture of what biblical marriage is to look like. It's just a mess, but it's a reminder to us that we don't walk away from this passage and try to be more like David, and we certainly don't walk away from it trying to be more like Uzzah and others. No, we walk away from it, and we should desire to be like Jesus. Unlike David, Jesus laid down his life for his bride. Unlike Jesus, or unlike David, Jesus, he... He lived and he died to serve his bride, the church. Unlike Uzzah, Jesus perfectly obeyed God. Uzzah made a presumption in his mind that it was better for the ark to touch his sinful, unholy hands than to touch the ground. How presumptive he was. And aren't we the same way so often? We, we presume that we know better than God. We, we presume that, that our wants and our desires should somehow trump God's command and God's word. Friends, don't make that presumption. Because while 
in the moment of our sin, God may not strike us dead like he did Uzzah. The wages of sin indeed is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So trust in Jesus today. And as you do, you see that third point become evident in your life. I skipped over it. It's somewhere. There it is. A mark of genuine faith is a desire for personal holiness. How, how do you know if you've trusted in Jesus? How, how do you know if you've genuinely passed from death to life? How, how do you know that indeed you are saved? The scripture says you know a tree by its fruit. And one of the fruits of the Christian faith is that when God takes our heart and makes it new when we respond to the gospel, he gives us new desires. And one of those desires is for personal holiness. One of those desires then is to be more and more like Jesus. Now, we're not going to be perfect and we're always going to fall short. But God puts this desire in our heart that we might grow in sanctification. So that we might look back on this day, one day down the road, and say, thank you, Lord, I'm not how I was then. <laughs> and yet still see, well, there's still need to grow more. It's a sanctification process where day by day, little by little, we become less and less like the old self and more and more like Jesus. And if that's not evident in your heart today, friends, then that's a, a good indication that perhaps you haven't put your trust in Jesus. And we certainly invite you to do that today. So if you would stand together as I pray for us and we come into this time of response. Father God, we thank you for your word and for this picture we have in front of us in your word of your holiness and our absolute unholiness. Lord, help us to see as we look at David and Uzzah and others, help us to see our own sin. Help us to see how we fall short so that we might see our need for salvation and redemption through Jesus. I pray, God, that our response to your word today would not be to, to try to do harder and try to be better. I pray that our response would be to repent and trust in Jesus. And I thank you, Lord, that Jesus gives us a new heart and new desires desire for personal holiness and if that desire is not there among anyone here today i pray you'd help them to see that that they might repent and trust in jesus and we ask all this in christ's name amen so friends we're going to sing together and worship together in response to god's word and as we do we do invite you to respond and not only through your worship but it may be that god's leading you to come and to publicly profess Christ as Lord today to share with this church family how you have trusted in Jesus to take that next step of obedience as we saw Violet do earlier and, and to make plans for your baptism and maybe God's leading you to come and join this church family and we'd love to start that process with you so we invite you to come we invite you to sing and worship as we respond to God's word together